WDBM East Lansing. Hello and welcome to Exposure on Impact 89FM, the show where we talk to members of organizations at Michigan State University and nonprofit organizations in the East Lansing area. We strive to promote diversity, freedom of expression, and resources to MSU students. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Exposure. I am your host, Stephanie, and today we have something magical, and I'm very excited to introduce you to the MSU Quidditch team. Thanks, guys, for coming in. Oh, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. We're really excited. Yeah, do you mind introducing yourself and talking about how you got involved with MSU Quidditch? Yeah, so my name's Brandon. I've been involved in Quidditch since my undergrad days uh, back in uh, St. Olaf College in Minnesota, which was in 2010 to 2014. And then, so coming here for my graduate work, I knew I had to find the Quidditch team. And I'm happy to say I've been with it four or five years. This year I'm the coach, so we're aiming to go as far as we can. That's awesome. Uh, I'm Charlie. Uh, I'm a beater on the team, and uh, I also take the photos for the team. And uh, my name's Rourke. I've been with the team since 2016, which is my first year at Michigan State. Uh, I was the coach of the team last year, and now I'm just a player. That's awesome. So for those of you that don't know, Quidditch is from Harry Potter, but how do you guys play it? It's a little bit different. We can't really fly. So how do you guys? A lot of running, (laughs) but we do keep the brooms. We use those as sort of an indicator of if you're in play or not. You have to ride your broom and then if you, for whatever reason you come off or you get hit by the bludgers, which are one of the types of balls that you can interact with, then you're out of play. So that makes it for an, quite an intricate game. Yeah, it certainly adds an extra dimension to the gameplay, having to keep the broom between your legs the entire time. Yeah, it's, it's, the whole game is kind of like rugby and dodgeball mixed into one. And then you have the additional layer of the snitch, which I'm sure everyone's got a question of how that, how that works. So we have a, an impartial, uh, sort of like a referee, but that this person is a runner, and they will have, sort of like in flag football, how you have the flag attached to your waist, the snitch ball will be attached to their waist, and then the, they can grapple with the seekers for both teams, and then both teams are trying to get their seeker to snag that, that ball off, off of their waist and... Then when you catch that, you the game has ended. Um, one of our adjustments for real world Quidditch is in the in the fictional world, it's 150 points because you get that big of score differential in those games when you're flying whizzing around on brooms. It's a little bit clo- closer games in uh, Muggle Quidditch, as we like to call it. So for that, it's only worth 30 points, but that makes for some really tight games. Can you speak on what the different positions are and your experience playing in different positions? Uh, yeah, so um, Brandon didn't mention it, but he is the keeper for our team. The keeper is sort of like a quarterback slash goalie. They uh, handle the quaffle, which is the other ball besides the bludger that we use. The quaffle is used to score points. In addition to the keeper, there are three chasers on each team who work with the keeper to try to put the ball through the hoops. Each uh, goal is worth 10 points. The other uh, two players on each team are the beaters, who use bludgers, which are just uh, dodgeballs, and they throw them at other players to try to knock them off their broom. If you get hit with a bludger, you have to dismount from your broom and go back to your own hoops before you can resume play. That's awesome. So 
it's got to be pretty competitive. Uh, what has been the best competition that you have been a part of? Well, for me, that goes back quite a ways to 2015. Uh, that was when the MSQ Quidditch team made it the furthest that they have at the uh, national competition. Uh, at that point, it was still called World Cup, but now that, that event is called Nationals. But we made it into the top 16 out of some 64 teams that were competing that year. Uh, we've gotten into top 32 since, but being a part of it that year was really impressive to see, and it was such tight competition, some really close games. We should sh say, too, that uh, since then, the tournament has expanded, and it was over 100 teams for the past two years when we've broken into the top 32. Oh, wow. Um, also, like, saying, like, it is nationals now. So, like, now there's an international thing where the United States has a team as well as, like, other countries like Australia, Germany, and the U.K. That's so cool to see that it's expanded so far. So at your guys' level, we I'm assuming you guys play other colleges? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Is there, like, different rankings where it's, like, Big Ten and then there's, like, D1, D2? Recently, we have uh, developed a community versus college split. It used to be that... All teams sort of played against each other, but what ended up happening is colleges have a quicker cycling time because they have people there for about four years, whereas community teams were able to keep longer veterans. So I think the most important split about that level was in splitting the community versus college teams. And right now, all college teams compete at that, at that college level, but who knows what the future will bring. Regionally, we don't we do compete against other Big Ten schools, but we also compete against other teams in the region that we play in, which is the Great Lakes, which also includes some smaller schools like Grand Valley, CMU, Central Michigan, uh, Bowling Green, and other schools in Indiana and Ohio. Absolutely. So, going back to what was the rest of you guys' favorite competition that you've been a part of? Uh, I don't really compete. Uh, like off the MSU campus because I'm not a very competitive person and I prefer to use it as a way to keep fit and to make friends and everything. But um, like before the Quidditch season really starts, MSU also has like this friendly like tournament mm -hmm. and being a part of that was very fun and very competitive. Um, but normally with like competitions, I just join them as a photographer. It's really nice to see that you don't have to p compete in the competitions to still be a part of it. You can still enjoy it just as a game and not have to compete at that high level. Exactly. And then what about you, Rourke? Um, My favorite competition would have to have been not last year, but two years ago, our trip to nationals. It was uh, my first year playing with the team. This was the 2017 nationals, but I had started in the fall of 2016. We had missed the cutoff to go to nationals the year before, and we really came out and played hard and made our way into the top 32 teams that year, and that was a great bounce-back season for us, and I was really proud to be a part of that. That's so awesome. So um, how does one get involved in all of this? So at MSU, the MSU Quidditch team has sort of multiple levels for people even just wanting to dabble, see what it's about. We have IM games uh, every week. Find us uh, currently at, uh, a lot of times, we'll be at Munfield on Tuesday nights at 6, and then we'll have practice. Yeah, Friday practices are also at Mun, and then Sunday practices are at IM East uh, uh, around 1, one, one, one to 3. Yeah. yeah.
And both of those are great times to sw come swing by, uh, see if you like it, get involved in a game, learn how to play. Uh, those are, we, we are always excited to have people who, hey, what's that? Do you play with brooms? That's awesome. So uh, do you guys do other things besides practice together? Do you do like social events outside of traveling for games or practicing? Um, a lot of the times, like, our team hangs out. We have uh, a few, like, parties sometimes. If you're, like, visiting, it's a good way to, like, know the people who play. Or, like, we go, like, a few weeks ago, we went to an, uh, an apple farm, an apple orchard, and, like, just got to pick apples and have fun, enjoy the autumn weather, as well as um, just, like, we, we just travel and just do things as a group. And it's where you find a lot of great friends. It's where most of my friends are. It's very much a social club as well as an athletic club. And then every winter we liked after we have a sort of fantasy tournament uh, where people from the region will act as uh, game managers and recruit a team from anyone on, on the region who's participating. And then after that, we'll have a Yule Ball for all of those teams. And that's a really fun time to get all of these Quidditch people together. And a lot of times uh, the friends of people will come as well and so that's a, probably one of our most fun social events of the year. Yule Ball is also like uh, anyone at MSU or friends of people who are at MSU can also come and uh, pay like a small fee and like enjoy the music and the party and get to know people. And if people wanted to you know join how intensive is practice how involved do they need to be is it you can go as like do as much as you want or as little as you want, or how does that work? It's very much up to up to the player. We'll get you involved at any level you want. Uh, if you want to use it as an opportunity to stay fit and improve, uh, we can we can put you through those steps to grow you and your competitive spirit. Uh, I've seen people go from uh, being a little bit uncertain on the pitch to being so fierce in competition. And I've also seen people that that do just keep it at the I, I am level and love to play with and build friendships that way. You can very much get out of it as much as you want to put into it. If you just want a casual uh, outside playing experience, you can do that. But a lot of people choose to take it to a really high level, working out multiple times a week to field as competitive a team as we can. So what do those practices look like? So we'll start with just some general warm-up, get everyone ready, and then we'll uh, throw some balls around. I will generally keep the quaffle players, so both keepers and chasers, with quaffle, and then uh, beaters with the bludgers. And then we will work on some specifics that we wanted to hone in on that week, either some specific uh, positional drills or like tackling technique or whatever happens to be what we need to work on. And then we'll usually run some joint drills together with both of those sets to, to really build that communication. And then we'll close off with some scrims. Do the scrimmages, do you pick certain teams? Is there starters and non-starters? Uh, it depends. A lot of times we'll try and mix it up. Uh, sometimes we're going for more, e like as even of battle battles as we can engineer, or sometimes we're going for specific lines. That's awesome. So if anyone wanted to come watch you guys play or do you have any other events coming up that we can help support you guys national or sorry regionals is going to be in westchester ohio which is a bit of a drive yeah but we do are going to have a we're planning on doing a scrim with oakland university on november 10th uh 
out of probably the time isn't isn't set for that. But you you if you follow us on the Michigan State Quidditch Facebook page, uh, or email us at msuquidditch at gmail dot com, you can get some information on that if you wanted to come and spectate that. We'd love to have people. Yeah. watching and getting involved definitely be really fun to come and watch you guys play quidditch because it's definitely not something you see every day and you can get a pretty good idea of what quidditch looks like uh watching any scrims from our practices or im games oh that's awesome so besides that again do you mind saying how people can contact you guys if they want to get involved or if they want to come and see you guys scrimmage our facebook page and group both are called michigan state quidditch we also have a twitter which is at MSU underscore quid, Q-U-I-D. We also have a website, which is msuquidditch.weebly.com or email us at msuquidditch.gmail.com. Awesome. Well, thanks, guys, for coming. Is there anything else you'd like to tell the Lansing community? We've been at it for a while because this is such a fun sport, and we really love it. So thank you for uh, tuning in and listening for to a little bit of what we ca- like to call Quidditch. Awesome. Well, thanks, guys. And there you have it. Another episode of Exposure in the Books. If you missed anything, feel free to check out our website at impact89fm.org, where you can find our weekly exposure podcast. Also, if you would like to come visit us and talk about your respected organization at MSU or a nonprofit organization in the East Lansing area, please feel free to contact us again on our website at impact89fm.org. And don't forget to connect with us on social media for current news and updates happening in our community. Just search for Impact 89FM. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Today, we welcome Rachel Damagowski. Rachel, can you please introduce yourself to our audience? Hi, so I am a math PhD student here at MSU, and I'm currently working on a project that involves graph theory and social network analysis. What does a PhD in math even look like? So when a lot of people hear that I'm doing a math PhD, they assume that I am in about Calc 100 by now. But um, most math classes sort of switch into different fields, just like any sort of science would. So what I'm studying is more about solving puzzles, and graph theory involves a lot of visual pictures. Um, So it it sort of breaks away from the standard math that you would think about. Can you please explain a little bit more what graph theory is? Yeah, so graph theory is not like drawing functions. I think that's what um, comes to mind. And it's also not pie charts, bar charts. Um, When we talk about graph theory, what we mean is just some set of points and lines that connect them. So if you thought about, say, a connect the dot picture, you have a bunch of dots and then you draw lines between them, you could think about that as a graph. Um, And we call those points vertices and the lines between them edges. And what do you do with this data? Uh, One application of graph theory is in social network analysis. So let's think again of some picture that has points and lines. And let's make each one of those points represent a person. 
So maybe this is one of the classes you're taking at MSU. Make each student in your class one of those points. Now the edges between them could represent some sort of relationship. So those edges could represent friendships or a, a colleague relationship, maybe a student and an advisor. Um, and we would draw that edge in if that relationship is present. Well, that's really interesting. Is the information that you're looking at, is it simulated information or are you looking at real world information that you extract? We're doing both. Um, so in some context, we want to sort of test whether our math models work in a certain way. And we will use empirical data that maybe someone in sociology or psychology has uh, obtained. And then in other cases, we want to sort of generate a bunch of random examples and see how those affect the models. Just to get our audience on the same page, what do you mean when you say you perform this social network analysis? Instead of thinking about like Facebook or Twitter as social networks, let's instead think about the relationships we have with each other that can be our social network. So my personal social network might be just who I interact with on a daily basis. And we could look at the social network of our entire classroom as who everyone interacts with. So just social relationships between people would be a branch of social network analysis. The topic of this work sounds extremely interdisciplinary. Are you working with other mathematicians when you're performing this kind of research, or do you work with specific sociologists and psychologists that collect this data in the first place? I'm actually working with both a professor, Dr. Bruce Sagan in mathematics, and Dr. Zachary Neal, who's over in uh, psychology. So it's very interdisciplinary right now. And how does a relationship like that even come about in the first place? Um, I was approached about it. So... Bruce knew that I liked graph theory and that I kind of wanted to find something more applied. Graph theory is thought of as what's called pure math, where the applications maybe we see down the road, but you're not immediately working on them. Um, so he approached me with the project. My assumption is that you get the data from Dr. Zachary Neal and then you apply it with your research with Bruce? Uh, so Zach is actually doing a lot of the actual research, and we are taking the data from various other sources. So one of the data sets we're using is actually government data between senators and bills they've co-sponsored. And that's just publicly available on the web. So we wrote a program that allowed us to take that and make it manageable for our research. Other data comes from um, older work in sociology. So there's um, a Southern Women data set that records uh, women and what parties they've attended. And it's very well known, so we're using that as well to test our methods. That's cool. You use publicly available data and you use the example of senators and passing bills. So what kind of data do you get from that? Like, do you find out what kind of party they're in? And like, what kind of factors are you looking at particularly? So with the senators and the bills they've sponsored, our goal is to figure out who has a political alliance and who could you say is in a political antagonism? So who's avoiding each other? And what we're doing is we're taking this data of senators and the bills they've sponsored, and we're trying to figure out who has sponsored more bills together than we would expect on average and who has sponsored less bills together than we'd expect on average. And if you think about this, it gets a little complicated. So let's say we just want to say... Two senators are friends if they've sponsored at least one bill together. 
But then maybe someone writes a bill and it says, puppies are cute. So everybody sponsors the bill. So now we would say that every single person in the Senate is friends. And we probably know that's not true. So now let's say, okay, maybe they have to sponsor at least 10 bills together. But now we have this issue of Democrats are probably going to sponsor more bills with Democrats. Republicans are going to sponsor more bills with Republicans. So the value that we choose between two people, it's going to change based on what we know about them. So what we're doing is creating methods using math that can tell us whether those two people, based on how many bills they've sponsored and who they've sponsored them with, um, if we can expect that to be significant in a sense that this relationship is important and we wouldn't expect it in a randomly simulated situation. Well, you are right. That is pretty complicated, especially because politics are pretty complicated. So what if we take it down a notch and we modeled a kindergarten classroom where everyone comes into a classroom and they don't know each other? How could we predict if they're going to be friends or not or enemies in kindergarten world? These methods are actually super important for looking at um, classroom situations involving children because through the IRB, we're not actually allowed to ask children negative questions. So we can't go and ask, you know, who are your enemies? So if we want to figure out who is friends or not in this classroom, maybe there is some data that we can look at, such as what clubs these students are in. Um, or what games are they playing at recess? And now maybe we see that two of the children are always playing the same games at recess. Then they're probably more likely to be friends because they're interacting together often. Or two other students are always doing completely opposite um, things on the playground, so maybe they're less likely to become friends. But at the end of the day, you're trying to understand what different models best represent whether or not you can predict if groups of people are going to end up being friends with each other or not. What kind of models are you looking at in the first place? We are looking at different ways to sort of randomly model what's going on. So if we think about the Senate example, um, what if we say that instead of Senator A sponsoring bills 1, 2, and 3, what if we say that that senator can sponsor whatever bills he wants or she wants as long as they still sponsor three of them. It may be bill number one. We don't care who sponsors it, but we do want four people to sponsor it. So we start playing with what happens if we sort of shuffle what everyone's doing um, over and over again. So this is going to give us a bunch of different random examples and then we can compare what is the actual number of sponsors for this bill. Is it way more than what happened when we sort of randomly shuffled? So there's several different ways we can do that, um, different algorithms that we can write. And then we can test if those algorithms are giving us what we um, either expect to happen or if they're giving us drastically different things, what is that going to mean? For clarification purposes, what do you mean by shuffling? Like, are you shuffling the same people in the group or are you adding more people to shuffle within the group? That's a great question. We're keeping all of the people the same and all of their activities, whether that's sponsorship or games they play in the playground, keeping all of those the same. 
And then we're just changing who did what activity. And possibly maybe they sponsored a couple more bills, but just a few or a couple less bills, just a few. But all the actual people and events are constant. Considering the level of complexity that goes into this kind of analysis, is there any room that machine learning can help improve your analysis of these models in the first place? Thought about it. I don't have a machine learning answer yet, but we did just write a, a package for R that contains some of these methods so that other researchers can test them out um, and see what they tell them about their own data. And what is R? R is a programming language. It's open source. It's free to use. Um, it's used a lot in statistics. And if you want to try out our package, it's called Backbone, and you can download it through the CRAN repository. That actually leads up into my question because I was wondering how are people going to get the, the program? So it's an open source thing. You just post it online and people are able to use it whenever they want? Yep. So R is like um, like Python. Um you just download it to your computer or you can use an online server. Um, and then you just tell it which packages you want to install. And you can upload your own data and then run it through the program. And it'll output, um, in our case, it'll output who should be considered friends and who should be considered enemies in your data. Well, this is great and all, but coming from a physics background, I've always understood that just because something is mathematically possible doesn't mean it's necessarily physically possible. How do we know that the mathematical models that you're using are actually going to really show that uh, certain people will be friends and certain people would be enemies? So this is something we're actually working on right now. Um, so in certain cases, we kind of know what to expect. So this gives us sort of examples where we know we're on the right track. Like with the senators, we know what party they're in. So if we end up with data that suggests the two parties are polarized, which we know they are, um, then that is a good sort of check mark for us that our models are doing at least kind of what we expect. But what we actually want to try to do is write an algorithm that gives us a ground truth. So that would be um, sort of like if we start with the end result, if we know who is actually friends and enemies, can we back that up? and create a situation where we say, knowing that these people are friends and enemies, now let's say we placed them in these different clubs or organizations. Now when we use our models, do we get the same results that we know we should get? So we're writing algorithms right now that do that so that we can sort of test the models on the ground truth. A term you've used a lot throughout this interview is ground truth. What does that exactly mean? So the ground truth is really just the actual true result. So if we run data through a model and we get some prediction, the ground truth would be the actual friendships, the actual, um, say, enemies between people, um, and not what our prediction is. So maybe our prediction gets really close, but the ground truth is the actual values. So for instance, with children, we can't actually ask them who their friends and enemies are. And maybe they won't tell the truth, right? They might lie. Um, but if we could actually sort of read their minds and know, that would be our ground truth. And how do you take into account the children lying? So that's actually one of the reasons for doing this um, in the first place is, especially when we're asking about negative relationships, 
Um, there's a multitude of different reasons why people might not give you the truth. And also when you're talking about networks, say you're asking about a classroom, that's a lot of individual relationships to ask about. And people might just forget, you know, maybe you're best friends with somebody, but we went through 30 names and you forgot at that point. Hopefully not. Thanks for taking the time to explain those different terms uh, that are really relevant towards your research. And since your research is based on graph theory, what has been your favorite part of graph theory as a whole in the, in the first place? My favorite part about graph theory is how you can take sort of these complicated mathematical ideas and frame them in an easy-to-understand way. Um, so, for instance, one of my favorite theorems in graph theory, uh, we can all sort of think about right now. So, say you take out a map, whether it's on your phone or one that's in your car, and we look at the number of different colors on the map. So usually we color two countries if they have a border, we color them in different colors so we can see them easier. So mathematically, we only need four colors to ever do this. And it's called the four color theorem. So someone thought about this way back in 1852. They wondered how many colors you could use to just color in a graph so that no two colors are touching. And this took all the way up until the 1970s to actually find an answer. So pretty simple to state question, really hard graph theory mathematics to actually prove that it was true. And it ended up actually needing a computer to solve. What do you mean by the two colors not touching each other? Like two colors on a different spectrum or physically not touching each other? Physically. So if we had, say, a map with of the United States with no colors, just black and white, and we wanted to color states so that if they were bordering, so Michigan and Ohio, we don't want to color both of them green because then it would be hard to read. So we'd color Michigan green, Ohio red. Appropriate color choices. Exactly. In this four color theorem, is it any particular four colors or it could just be any random four colors? Any random four colors that you choose even if they're close by each other, like blue-green or yellow-green? Yeah, so the all we're looking at here is if you can always do it with four colors and you won't ever need five. So there's no map that you can create that'll need five or more colors so that no two of them are touching. Even if it was like the Midwest where you can have a state surrounded by a ton of other states, could is that basically like you're just varying the color to every other one if they're next to each other? Yep. So if there's, say, one state in the middle and then like a circle of states around them, maybe make the middle one blue and then the other ones alternate, say, red and green back and forth. And what motivated you to get into math in the first place? I've always liked math and I've always been decent at it. I originally thought I wanted to go into medicine and when I started um, school at Central Michigan. And I decided to just take a, another math class um, because I liked it. And I thought I could, you know, fulfill one of my prerequisites. And I ended up wanting to take more and more math classes. And I figured that was kind of a sign. And they also made me play with bugs in biology. So I knew that I wasn't going to go down that route. Um, but I've always sort of liked just solving puzzles. Um, and I find that that's what I get to do a lot of, especially in grad school. So it's been fun. Is there any advice you would give to any of our listeners that are maybe struggling in their Algebra 1 class in high school right now that uh, could hear from someone that went into college and decided to 
pursue math? I think that we can find that math sort of isn't everything with how the world works, but everyone has a different learning style. So a lot of times with learning algebra, you're sort of learning this new way to think, this new way to sort of solve logical problems. And a lot of times we just need to sort of change how we look at it, try different methods. And math is sort of like a sport where a lot of it comes down to practice. How did you realize that you wanted to go to graduate school after? Since you first thought that you were going to go to medical school, how did you make that transition? I decided I wanted to go to graduate school after participating in what we call REU, so the Research Experiences for Undergrads. Highly recommend if anybody um, sort of likes problem solving, um, likes school a little bit, uh, wants to sort of dive deeper into sort of mysterious places in science. Uh, do an RU. So I did two of those in undergrad, and I realized that I really like just sort of thinking about these problems that no one knows how to solve yet and seeing if I can figure it out. So you're sort of solving a puzzle that you don't know what the answer is. I think it's really interesting that you're taking such a theoretical field that people consider to be only touched upon by mathematicians, and you're connecting it with such a softer field such as the humanities and sociology and psychology. With that being said, what are you interested in doing to use your math PhD in the future once you graduate? I think my ultimate goal is probably to figure out how to use some form of math to solve crimes. But I don't know how to do that yet. And we might be diving into tech industry or academia along the way. Hey, who knows? Maybe you can help... uh predict who might actually commit a crime before it actually happens. You never know. There we go. Be a real-time superhero, but with math. Exactly. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Rachel, for joining us this morning to talk about a subject that a lot of people are often intimidated by and to show that anybody can study a field as long as they find some sort of interest in it. So thank you again. Thank you guys for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on SciFiles.